Um, if I haven't met you yet, my name's Noah, pastor here. Uh, we're going to get started with 1 Corinthians. Now, just to kind of like, uh, because it is the first sermon series, I am going to kind of intro it. I'm going to kind of give some context to the letter because it's important for us to know what's going on. Um, we'll be going through this for nine months besides the Christmas season where we do an Advent series. Um, and we're going to be wrestling through some tough, tough topics. Uh, in this letter, Paul, which is the author of 1 Corinthians, he's going to be talking about some of the founda- foundational questions of what it means to be a Christian and how Christians are supposed to live and engage um, really in a society not too different from ours now, very pluralistic, uh, very just um, not, not really, I would say, Christian, uh, but really kind of seeing what does it mean to be a Christ follower in this time. And so as we tackle this letter, what's, I want to kind of help you and actually ask one big overarching question every time we hopefully go into this passage, at least when I preach it. I'm going to kind of go over this one question, and it's this question here um, on the slide. It's the question, how, uh, next slide, how, how does the church follow Jesus in a world that doesn't follow Jesus? How does the church follow Jesus in a world that doesn't follow Jesus? As we go through this letter, I want us to ask that question every single time we read it. Um, and I think there will be a lot that actually we see in 1 Corinthians and how Paul is challenging his readers, his people to see what it really means to follow Jesus in light of what uh, many other people in the world choose to do or choose not to do. And so if you actually have an opportunity, if you don't have one of these already, there's like two versions of this, but there's, um, these are called ESV study uh, journals, which they're basically just uh, the text on one side and a journal on the other side. And we have a ton actually over there. If you don't have one, please grab one. Because what I want to challenge you as we go through this uh, sermon series is to actually read the passage before you uh, come and hear it on a Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon, whichever time we gather. Uh, And to really do the hard work of reflection and prayer so that you are coming in beforehand knowing what we're going to be talking about. And so as the preacher, as the sermon goes on, we're not just giving you new information, but that you have actually wrestled with it before. And so I challenge you, please grab one if you don't have one. Um, If you got it, if you have all that, tell me you got it. You got it. All right, thank you. Uh, I would love some interaction as I go through this uh, sermon here. And so let's go. First Corinthians in in your journal or in your Bible. First Corinthians chapter one, verses one through 17. I'm gonna read it and then I'm gonna dive right in. Verse 1, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you are enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was conformed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, our brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. 
For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow uh, Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I, I did baptize also the household of the Stephanus, beyond that, I do not know whether I baptize anyone else. Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. God, we thank you for uh, this word and this text and this letter that we'll be able to dive into. Uh, Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would have mercy on us and that you would uh, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and um, wisdom in how to apply your text for us today. It was written 2,000 years ago, God, to a specific church in a specific place. But God, I pray that the words that you spoke would also have meaning to us, so that we would not just be hearers of your words, but doers of your words. And, and God, lastly, I ask that Whatever I say um, that are just my words or my ideas or my opinions would just be forgotten and that whatever you would have for your people in this time, in this moment, would be heard um, well for uh, our, our church, for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Now, uh, before I dig into this text, uh, I want this letter to come a little bit alive for us here. So I, I feel like it's important to understand the, the tension and the circumstances that the Corinthian church was going through and what was life like? What was culture like for them? And so uh, to better understand what it means for us 2000 years later. So here we go. First uh, Corinthians, it's the first letter we have written by the Apostle Paul. He actually wrote another letter um, that we don't have, but he wrote the second one. That's the longest one he wrote. And it's because he helped start this church in the Roman city of Corinth around 46 to 50 AD. Now, let me just show you a map where um, Corinth was. Um, it's kind of hard to see, but basically it's, you know, modern day Greece kind of at the edge, very close to Athens here um, by a, a port um, that's there. Now, kind of quick history, Corinth, about 150 years ago, um, was actually annihilated by the, uh, by the Romans, and uh, they, they, they destroyed it because it was a Greek uprising during that time. But then it was rebuilt. It was rebuilt by Julius Caesar, who then sent former slaves who won their freedom back to rebuild this city. So this city, it became known as a place to climb the social ladder, if you can say that, where people could make a name for themselves, a place that drew people from all over the world to make a name for themselves. And it kind of reminds me a little bit about Chicago, um, like any really global city where a lot of people are coming in and people are going out. So over time, this city of Corinth became a very powerful and influential city. And eventually it became the uh, one of the, the, the province capitals of Greece during that time. So the Apostle Paul, he knows this. He, he knows it's a major city, and so he goes into the city. And I feel like it's helpful to kind of categorize this city in three arenas that it was known for in this time. First, it was known for its sexual promiscuity. Now, in other words, being a Corinthian was equated to really uh, being sexually immoral or sexually free. 
Now, this was known across the world in this time where there are even historical documents where the city's name openly was used as a euphemism where prostitutes were called Corinthian girls. So very well known in this time period. Second, this sexual promiscuity also stemmed from the spiritual plurality. Now, this was a city where temples were everywhere. If you know Greek or Roman um, religion, you know, they worship many different gods in many different areas, whether it's fertility or romance or economics or war or whatever it is. So all of life, all of business, all of entertainment was centered around these gods and these temples. And the third arena was that Corinth was also known for its status or its economic wealth. You know, Corinth sat sat on one of the most active ports in the Roman Empire, and so business and economics just flourished in the city. So this city also provided opportunities for great wealth, but because it had great wealth, it also became a place for many entrepreneurs to come in, but also also in that that way, many people lost a lot of their means or all of their means. And so Corinth was not just the place for wealth, but also great poverty and great diversity across ethnicity, background, religion, and many, many more different categories. And so when Paul comes into Corinth in this time, these are some of the arenas that he kind of has heard of and then experiences firsthand. And we see Paul's journey of coming to Corinth actually in Acts 18. If you read all of Acts 18, it's his journey of starting a church in the city of Corinth. And so he sees the brokenness of the city, the opportunities of the city, the problems of the city. And so he, he, he sees this, but he wants to reach this city with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if I were to read Acts 18, you will see that Paul meets um, the famous couple, Aquila and Priscilla, where he then also baptizes new believers, both Jewish believers and Greek or who, non-Jew believers. And he stays in Corinth about a couple of years to really start the church and then leave it behind for capable individuals. And it's really unique here because Paul doesn't usually spend about two or three years in a city. He spends usually around six months to a year. And so it's unique that Paul spends a long time in the city. Now fast forward three more years, and this is when he writes this letter. Three years after he's left, because he hears that there are things not right in the church are these concerning reports and if you look at the letter of first corinthians it's not a short letter the average greco-roman letter in that time was about 90 to 200 words long but this letter is about 6800 words long just a little bit shorter than his letter to the rome uh, to the romans which we have as uh, as romans which is the longest letter that peter uh, that paul ever wrote And so you can say there were a lot of things that were not right in the church of Corinth. So as you imagine, this letter probably has a lot of things that Paul wanted to address for the Corinthians. And so, you know, I kind of feel a little bit like Paul here. Um, As a parent, I feel like I can kind of relate. Because as a parent, uh, my boys do not often listen to me or do what I say to do and obey. That's like an allergic reaction they have, I feel like, sometimes. And there's a long list of things that they actually do not do at the request of their loving mother and loving father. Now, I don't, I know, I, don't be fooled, okay? I know when they, like, run around here, they look so sweet and cute and fun. But, you know, there's deep sinful rebellion in their hearts 
every single day. It confines in our home, in our at church, or in the middle of Target. It just comes out wherever they please. And so many times when this happens, I confess I, I lose my patience. I just tell, I like, I yell at them sometimes. I take away whatever they're fighting for. I don't even reason with them. I just, I get upset and um, I tell them, stop doing this or please do that. Or how many times do I have to tell you to not do this and repeat myself? And, and, I, and I don't stop hammering them until they do what I want them to do. Or I just discipline them in whatever way, a timeout or something. And most times after I do that, my conversation with them just stops right there. Because my frustration and this disappointment just takes over and I leave it just at that. Now, it's not wrong to discipline or to correct my kids because that's what good parents are supposed to do. But the correction part is often the easy part for the parent. Pointing out wrong, if you've done that before, even to a friend or to a roommate, it's pretty easy. The harder part is to explain to them the why. Why should they listen to me and obey me? Well, it's not just because I'm their parent, but it's because they are my children. They are chunks. They should obey me because as my children, they are an extension of me. So it's not just about behavior modification, but in order for their actions to truly change, they must come to a deeper awareness of who they really are. It's teaching them about their identity. So because Paul, in this letter, is probably a lot more patient and loving than me as a parent, instead of just writing down this laundry list of things that they need to do and things that they have done wrong in the city of Corinth, Paul knows that he must first begin with who the Corinthians are. Which brings me back to that question I shared in the beginning of our time. How does the church follow Jesus in a world that doesn't follow Jesus? Here it is for Paul. By rooting our identity in Jesus Christ more than anything else in this world. By rooting our identity in Jesus Christ more than anything else in this world. Or in other words, it's by having a gospel identity. So for the time today, as I kind of go through, I have just two ways that we see here how we can have a gospel identity in our text. And the first, uh, it breaks up really nicely in these sections here. The first one is verse 4 through 9, is that our identity comes from God's grace and not in what we do. Our identity comes from God's grace and not in what we do. If you go back to our text here now, Paul begins his letter with a standard introduction of who he is, but also in what authority he is writing this letter. Verse 1, Paul says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Apostle was an eyewitness of the Lord uh, Jesus Christ who was commissioned by him to preach the word. So already Paul is clear that he's not just writing on his own authority, but he's writing with the authority given to him by Jesus Christ. And then notice in verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth. Isn't it interesting that he says, not the Corinthian church, but to the church in Corinth? Because he's specific here that this is that you are not a church in a silo, but that you are a part of God's church that happens to be in the city of Corinth. The church who is sanctified and called, it belongs ultimately to God. So right off the bat here, Paul is saying with Jesus' authority, hey, 
you troublemakers, I know you're hearing this letter from me, and I know you know that I know what you did is wrong. But remember first, know the church you are a part of. It does not belong to you. It belongs to God. Its identity is first in God. Then, as you get to verse 4, Paul gives this exhaustive thanksgiving because he reminds them of the most important piece of their identity. It says in verse 4, because of the grace of God was given to you in Christ Jesus. You know, this grace was not bought or earned. It was freely given to them. The same ones who were being called out, who were sinful and disobedient. This grace that was in Jesus Christ, which is the culmination of his life and his death and his resurrection and his sending of the Spirit to start the church, was given to them just like it is given to us if we believe. It's nothing that they deserved, but it's simply because God's grace, Jesus' grace that forgives, that redeems, and gives eternal life was given to them even though they didn't deserve it. But then, not only is this grace given, but then Paul, in verse 5, he says that this grace in Jesus Christ also enriches you in all speech and knowledge. If you go through this, verse 4 through, there's a lot of, like, theology in here, but just bear with me a little bit. Um, Verse 5, you know, enriches, a better translation for that word enrich is that you have been given abundantly. So then, given what? What are they given? speech and knowledge what is all this the speech and knowledge talk well if you go to verse 7 here paul further explains these riches in the form of the gifts that they will not lack now these gifts here are they're not monetary or material items but it's the gifting that comes and is given to the church through the holy spirit the giftings of faith or wisdom or knowledge mercy teaching generosity serving, healing, and much more. And we'll get to that later in chapter 12 when Paul talks a lot about that um, later on. And then as we see in verse 8, that they will not just lack these gifts, but through these gifts, Christ will sustain them until he returns. Now what Paul is trying to show is that every good gift in the life of the ministry of the church, every gifting that God has given was only because the grace that God has given to them in Jesus Christ. Every gift that the Corinthians argued about or prided themselves about or tried to do themselves is only because God's grace was given to them. That they are rich and that they are able to be sustained no matter how tough life gets because God's grace is given to them in Jesus Christ. And to make it ultra clear in verse 9, Paul reminds them that God is faithful. God is faithful. You are not faithful. We are not faithful. God is faithful. And he summarizes his thanksgiving with this reminder that God's grace is rooted in his faithfulness. Or to put it another way, our identity is rooted only in God's faithfulness, not yours. Now, um, it kind of reminds me of this. And how, how many of you actually have played this game before? This game called Jenga. Anyone? No one? Okay, some of you. 
Okay, like half of you. I'm very shocked by that, okay? I would think that like almost all of you have played. Well, okay, um, I'm not going to play by myself because it's going to be quite a mess here. Um, but Jenga is, uh, I think there's a picture too on there, but Jenga is, uh, I'm not going to get this out. It's going to be kind of crazy. Uh, it's simply a game where you uh, basically have this stack of wooden blocks just like this, and you can see it up here, where then you try to take a block out and stack it on top. And the goal is to keep stacking and taking turns until um, the person who can't do it and the whole tower crumbles and you say Jenga, and then that person loses. Really fun game, um, I think, uh, especially for kids. Uh, but what's interesting is that in this game, it's, it's really easy, actually, to do the first few pieces, right? If you played before, it's really easy to take one out, put it on top. You can kind of find the loose pieces here. Um, but as the tower gets taller and it gets skinnier, kind of like the picture there, it gets more difficult. You don't know what the loose pieces are. Um, and there's, it's harder to find uh, the pieces that would be able to stack on top because the tower gets a lot more um, unstable. But the irony in this game is that no matter how tall you build the Jenga tower, it's going to fall. Like, it's inevitable. That's the point of the game. It's going to fall. Someone will always make a mistake, and the tower will be just too weak. Now, pretend instead of playing in a group of friends, you are playing by yourself and you are trying to build the tallest Jenga tower possible. And maybe your friend or your other people that you're with, they're trying to build with their own tower, the highest tower possible without falling. Now, I imagine that would be a really fun competition to see who can do that. But what if these towers represented our lives or our identity? And every block that we try to take from the bottom and put on top would be that performance there, or that achievement that there, or that experience there, to kind of make our Jenga tower a little bit higher than those around us. Sometimes we just try hard and we keep doing it, even if it crumbles and falls, we try to build it up again. But we keep doing it over and over again. Or sometimes we just give up and we don't want to build it anymore and we just leave the Jenga tower as it is. But all in all, if we try to build this Jenga tower as tall as we can on our own, it will always fall. We can't. We can't build the tallest one because we don't have the amount of resources to build as high as we can. It will come crashing down. My question for you and why I point to this um, silly game is, which identity are you trying to build up today? Which identity are you trying to build up today? Is it in your career? Is it in your family or your relationships or your friendship or community? Is it in your experiences or your invisible following online? Is it in your body, your income bracket, your educational achievement, your possessions, your good works, or even your religion? Today, the message is that we hear in society that our identities are supposed to be chosen, earned, and built up. But the more you try to build up your Jenga towers, which are really identities, the more you try to seek the joy and the fulfillment of getting to that certain height, you actually become more fragile. You become more weak because you're trying to get higher and higher on your own, all with the potential of inevitably crashing down and falling and seeing that your identity you're trying to build up really isn't the one that you really wanted to make. And the bad news is that there is not a single identity that you can build up on your own on this earth that will stand. Every single one 
will fall down like a Jenga tower. And my bet is that for some of you in this room, you've already felt the tower falling before. You've felt the disappointment that it brings, the frustration that it brings, even the anger of not being able to live into the identity that you thought you could attain. And truthfully for me, I felt it too. Whether it's in um, how much work I try to do or plan or serve, whether in my ministry or in my health or in my family, I can't seem to be the perfect pastor or the perfect father or husband or the perfect figure or even the perfect Noah that I wish I could be. Now, this just isn't a 2022 American problem. This is a human problem throughout the ages. And it's what the Corinthians were dealing with too, an identity crisis. Were they children of the living God who are recipients of his grace, or were they enslaved to their own identity expectations? This is why Paul goes back to this theme again in verses 4 through 9. If you haven't noticed here, I've mentioned the grace given to you in Jesus Christ like 20 times because that's how important it is for the Corinthians and also for us to know that if our identity is based on the grace given to you through Jesus Christ, it is not like a Jenga tower. It's amazing here. Even if you look from verses 4 through 9 here, the, the word God and the word Jesus is used over 14 times just in that small section. And that's how much Paul is saying, go back to God, go back to Jesus, back to them. This is where your identity is in. It's not in your own one that you're trying to build up, but it is firstly based on not a Jenga tower, but on two large wooden frames that are actually stained by the blood of the Lamb. Which leads me to my second way we are to have a gospel identity. Our identity is formed by the cross and not by the world. Our identity is formed by the cross and not by the world. In this next section, um, which I, I feel I can spend the whole sermon on, but just kind of the next five, ten minutes here, uh, Paul starts to address the first immediate concern that he sees in the Corinthian church. And it's this issue of division. Now, in verse 10, Paul starts, I appeal, literally that word is I urge, I beg of you, brothers and sisters, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, again, pointing to his authority that he has in God, he says that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Paul comes out of this beautiful gospel identity thanksgiving and then he directly goes after the main thing he, I think that he wants to get at for the Corinthians. And it's this issue of division. That word division is the same. It's a Greek word, a schisma, which basically we get our word schisms from. So again, this word that just divides and separates people. And in verse 11, we see here, Paul is not ashamed. He's saying, like, I heard the reports from the people of Chloe. And so him saying that is also reminding the Corinthians when they're reading this letter that he has proof that there is division in this church. And then in verse 12 through 16, Paul kind of gets blunt here. He gets pretty sarcastic too. And let me just read it again. He says, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Paulus or I follow Cephas, who is Peter, or I follow Christ. 
Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. And then he, he goes on to this saying, like, like almost like this tangent saying, like, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. You know, I, I did baptize also the household of this uh, Stephanus, but beyond that, I don't know. And so Paul's kind of ranting here. He's frustrated of why this is an issue where the church of Corinth were starting to get into these factions and these sides. And their preferences became their identity. Now for them, it might have been because they liked a certain leader better, or it might have been because they preferred a certain way of ministry being done, or it might have been because they agreed with one ideology more than the other that this guy was saying and not saying. And so it, it, they just began to be divided over that. But Paul was having none of it. Going to such lengths, he was saying, is Christ divided? Like, he even says, like, was I crucified for you, or did I baptize you in the name of Paul? Like, Paul is just shocked and angry that division is being, like, caused within the church that he started about three years ago. Because Christ is supposed to unite. He has called all of us to become one in him. He is the rallying point. And all of the leaders and giftings, even their opinions and styles, are underneath the importance of being a part of Christ and his church and to point to Christ alone. What Christ united should never be divided. Because one of the primary markers of the church is its unity amidst our preferences. Now, it's important to remember here that Paul is not saying that the Corinthian church or the church now should all just be the same. He's not calling us to be a church of sameness, but he's calling the Corinthian church to have the same mind in Christ. Now, I mentioned before, Corinth was a very diverse city. So just like, you know, the church here, I imagine there's great social economic diversity, ethnic diversity, preference diversity, age diversity, even political diversity too. The church is meant to have diversity. But it's a problem only when we become increasingly suspicious of one another in the community because of those differences or those preferences. And to be honest, church, um, if we just look outside, if we just walk out our walls and look at social media, look at the news, we are pretty bad as the capital C church, especially in America, on this very issue. We're pretty pathetic, if I were to say that. Let me just read you a quote from a pastor on church division. He says this, We spend our strength in arguing, bickering, contending, quarreling, and opposing one another rather than magnifying, blessing, and praising the name of God. We are a divided people. Peace and unity have flown from us, and a spirit of contention and division has come upon us. The church is divided, the state is divided, the city is divided, the country is divided, towns are divided, families are divided, godly people are divided, ministers almost everywhere are divided. Yes, and what heart is there at this time that is not divided within itself? And it's interesting because he's saying that once everything around becomes divided, our hearts begin to even be divided um, itself. And you would think that this quote would be from today, right? That a pastor wrote this today? Well, if you go to the next slide, it's the name on there. This quote's actually from 1642 um, from a pastor in Jerem Pastor Jeremiah. 
Uh, and he was a pastor during the great division that was caused in the Church of England. That it got so bad from this church division that one faction actually beheaded the King of England because the King of England belonged to a different faction. My reminder, and I can't go too much into this because of just time, but my reminder and warning for us all is that we are to not discount the impact division can do within the church. You know, I don't know about you. I don't know if any of you have been a part of a church split or a church divide before, um, but I've been a part of my fair share. Uh, I grew up in a Korean immigrant church. In my home church, it split over four or five times within my childhood. It got so bad that by the end, the church actually closed down when I was in college. Um, I lost friends because of those divisions. My parents lost friends and even don't talk to them to this date. And ultimately, the witness of Jesus Christ and his gospel identity that was supposed to draw people together actually pushed people out of the church. I still know families from those divisions who no longer go to church because of those divisions. And even today, if you look at recent studies about um, conversion in the church, well, basically what people become Christians in the American church, that for every conversion in the church, there are four deconversions in the church. And honestly, I think it's because the church is so fragmented in the U.S. But as uh, Justo Gonzalez, uh, a Cuban-American theologian, once said, the church must be one because a fragmented church is not much help to a fragmented world. So then, the question is, how do we do this? How do we become a church united when a world that, that operates in silos and factions and groups that the world is just as bad as in the church? It's pretty divided over any issue you can think of from cultural, social, political, and even silly ones like, is this dress blue or white or gold? I don't even know to this day what that even means, but we still are divided over these ridiculous things. And the answer is found in verse 17. Verse 17, and I honestly think verse 17 is probably the thesis and the main point of the entire letter. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. In order to be a united church, our primary identity must be formed and shaped by the power of the cross. The cross, now this kind of next slide here, you can, I'll, I'll kind of go through this, but the cross points to Christ's humility, where he took on death on our behalf so that we can also lay down our preferences for the sake of others. But the world chooses pride and power to, to be right all the time, to have and take power and dominance instead of giving it up. The cross points to our sin and brokenness that Christ took on, and reminding us of how broken and messed up we are. While the world chooses their ways, or our ways, or they, they want to live in the ways and ideas and lifestyles that are, meant to, that are meant for them to live in, that they think are best. The cross, again, points to forgiveness that God, that Christ has given to us, reminding us that we are also called to forgive others even when they have shamed or hurt us. While the world prioritizes revenge. I mean, if you look at most movies, they're honestly about revenge. Never letting any harm go unless they can get back at them. 
The cross also then points to unity and hope, reminding us that we come from different backgrounds, preferences, and baggages, and everything in between, but because of Christ's shed blood and broken body, it can unite us, even the most hostile people, together. But the world, it constantly divides over ideologies, money, power, background, and so much so that people don't even mingle with each other. There's even a football game later on today, and people are divided over who to root for. It's, we're, we're a divided kind of people. The cross ultimately points to a beautiful and wonderful Savior who, because of his death and resurrection, frees us from all the false identities of the world so that we can find our true identity in him. Where the world, it just conjures up more Jenga towers of idols and things that actually enslave us and make us tired and make us more anxious and more frustrated. But all in all, for those identities and idols to just fall over time. Church, the power of the gospel is not in who we identify with or what we build up or even with eloquent words or intellectual reason, but the power of the gospel is formed by the cross. The one symbol in our faith that is scandalous and ridiculous to the watching world, but it's the one symbol that draws all people to Jesus Christ. And it is through that cross that we actually can draw near to Jesus Christ. So my question to you that you can write down in your journal if you have it is, is the cross shaping your identity? Is the cross of Jesus Christ shaping and forming your identity? Or is it something else in this world? If the cross is what shapes your identity, there is no way that division and pride can bubble up in the church. If we are all Christ-centered people, there is no reason for us to be divided because we don't even belong here in the first place. The cross unites us. And as the wonderful hymn says, the cross bids us to come and die. And that is the call for all Christ followers. And that is honestly the theme that we'll see throughout this letter. That for whatever issue comes up for Paul, he always goes back to this, this cross-centered community where it's people who display humility, forgiveness, hope, and who comes together all, all underneath that cross knowing that we do not belong here, um, but Christ has given us the opportunity to come together. And so as I begin to just wrap up, I want to go back to that question again. The first question I ask, how does the church follow Jesus in a world that doesn't follow Jesus? By rooting our identity in Jesus Christ and his cross more than anything we can do or anything else in this world. And that's my hope that we would be people who are rooting our identity in Jesus Christ. That is my prayer. Um, and that's what I hope that we'll continue to go deeper in. That's the foundation of this letter. And we'll go deeper on what, what that means in the various aspects of like spiritual gifts or um, worship or marriage or um, even singleness or uh, the Lord's Supper or um, sexuality or just, uh, you know, even just the idea of like the, resur the resurrection. Many of these things we'll talk about what does it look like to have our identity in Jesus, Christ, Jesus Christ and his cross. So with that, let me pray. 
Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for um, the challenging word that it is and, and how it calls us to be people who um, are shaped by your grace and by your cross. And so, Father, I do ask that you would work in us, that you would um, form our identity in you, that you would help us flee from the many things, the many towers of uh, Jenga pieces that we're trying to build up. I pray that you would humble us enough to see that, uh, God, our identity in you is so much more um, powerful, strong, and firm than anything else that we can try to build up in our lives. And so, Jesus, call us to yourself. Um, we can't do this on our own. Um, we'll fail. Um, only by your grace can we do this. And so we thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Be with us in this sermon series, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.